Uh, so uh, we're going to look at here as first things and priorities. Now, priorities, uh, it seems to me that we all have to live like this, that we all have to, in, in terms of first things of priorities and practices, we have to do this. It, it, it just seems to me that whenever we understand what our priorities are, we can choose carefully among the many demands on us. Because I don't know about you, but my life seems to have more demands and more things to do than ever. I thought technology was going to save us, you know, uh, and it isn't. It's drowning me. Uh, I can't get away from students. I keep getting emails, and I don't dare give them my phone number out uh, because, you know, I'm, it's just uh, all the time. There's, there's stuff going on all the time, and, and uh, it matters. So it, priorities help us to choose carefully among the demands. We can't do everything. It, it also helps us to focus our energies on what really matters, to, to, to really focus our energies on, on, on what, what really matters. And it helps us to keep our attention focused on those matters. I, I love uh, this idea about priorities. Uh, any, any, I'm sure you've seen Apollo 13, the movie. You know, I don't, I don't dare try to do the video on here because I have a Mac computer. And, uh, but uh, Apollo 13, uh, great story about uh, this, uh, 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 what, what Jim Lovell called a successful failure. Uh, whenever they get up into the, uh, going to the moon and, you know, the story gets crippled and, and uh, Tom Hanks is on there, so they're going to make it back. You know that. Tom <laughs> Hanks can't die in a movie. No way. And, uh, you know, they get crippled and, and so they have to do all this kind of stuff to, to, to turn this thing into a lifeboat uh, to get back. And toward the end, uh, as they're trying to determine, are they going to make it? And they're doing all kinds of mathematical equations and they've got these books they're working through that the computer that would have made all these calculations was now down because of saving on the battery. And so now they're having to do this manually. And they're having to work through all of these and all these calculations. And luckily, these guys can multiply letters. And uh, they're, they're, they're working through all this. And at one point, Kevin Bacon, who plays uh, Jack Swigert, uh, Kevin Bacon comes to, to uh, Tom Hanks and uh, says, you know, uh, I think uh, the numbers they're giving us are off. And he said, I think we're coming in too shallow. Uh, and as we enter the Earth's atmosphere, if we come in too shallow, we're going to bounce off and just go back and do a permanent orbit around the sun. It doesn't sound like much fun, uh, <laughs> unless you're in Washington, D.C. today. <laughs> that would be fun to be on, at the sun today or in Philadelphia. Um, but so uh, you say, uh, so they're doing all this, and, and, and he keeps coming to them, and, and the guy, uh, Tom Hanks plays Jim Lovell, keeps saying, just a minute, we're working on something, just a minute, we're working on something. And I'll never forget this line because he said, listen, they, they've not given us enough of these statistics. And Lovell says back to him, they've got half the PhDs on the planet working on this. Give us a minute. We're working on something. Then there's no way to reverse it. He said, and so finally he keeps coming. And Lovell finally makes this statement. He said, there are a thousand things that have to happen before we re-enter. We're on number eight and you're talking about 692, <laughs> right? Do you ever feel like that? There's 692 things to do. And you're trying to figure out, but I'm on eight. <laughs> and how do I make priorities and, and work in those kind of ways? And so I want to I talk to you about pri a priority. And even in my research and work, I, I was thinking the other day, maybe this should have been the first one. Maybe this should have been the first one because I'm going to share with you some ideas here that you probably have heard before. Uh, but, but I do want to, to, to make certain that we have this understanding. So the first thing we're going to talk about is another priority is another priority. And I want to talk to you about this matter here. This priority is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, um, it, it seems to me 
uh, as I study scripture and uh, try to uh, uh, understand this, that uh, this is a terrible word to use. And you know, by, by the way, I, when I teach about this, I'd like to be sitting in a chair with a cup of coffee talking to you. You know, I mean, if anybody wants to get a donut and I take my coffee without anything in it, but because this is more, I hope, of a conversation because this is a critical, I hope to prove to you somewhat forgotten matter. Uh, a book I will recommend you to read uh, if you want to on this uh, topic of the Holy Spirit is a, by a guy named Francis Chan. Some of y'all are familiar with him. He's a very dynamic uh, He's like me. He has uh, attention def. He has ADD, but he's like me. He has ADD in HD, <laughs> high definition. <laughs> he doesn't just have ADD. It's in high definition. You know what? Um, but he's written a great book that I think addresses what I'm trying to suggest here. And the name of the book is Forgotten God. Forgotten God. And Chan's assertion is that in the evangelical church and in churches much today, the Holy Spirit is one of the members of the Godhead we've completely forgotten about. Now, that's probably an overstatement. But, but that we have not given the proper interest, the proper concern in this matter. And so I want to speak to you under this idea of the presence, the priority of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you what I think here. That I would suggest to you, if I'm reading scripture, what we call synoptically, the big picture, not the individual pieces, but, but to see the teaching of scripture in a big frame, that the coming and the presence of the Holy Spirit is the goal of all of God's activity. The coming of the Spirit is the goal. Now, this is going to sound a little edgy here, but just stick with me. Not the cross. Not the cross. The cross is not the goal of God's activity. We've made it that. We've, we've identified it and we're thankful and we know that on the cross that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for human sin. We know that God's activity and work, if you will, was working, Jesus, working with Jesus as he, as he comes to uh, Calvary and gives his life. But you've got to read the scriptures here. And whenever I, I, I look at this, when I, when I consider this uh, goal of God's activity, I want to give you a couple of things here why I think that's true. Number one is the promise of God. The promise of God. I'm going to give you several verses and we'll work through them <clears throat> as quickly as we can. Uh, but, but I want you to get this in your mind. I, I want you to consider, you don't have to agree with me, but I want you to consider that the presence of the Holy Spirit is the goal is the final goal in, in, the, in this respect in God's activity. Now, you might say, well, getting us to heaven. I, okay, you know, if you want to talk about that. But I'm, I'm suggesting in our life now, I've had students say to me before, Cliff, why do all people just talk about going to heaven? And that's what they think salvation is. I said, because we're all old that are talking to you. <laughs> right? You get old, you want to talk about heaven. <laughs> he said to me one time, he said, I wish somebody would talk to me about life now. I wish somebody would talk to me about life now as to what's available and what, what is God provided in his economy for us. So what is the promise that relates to this goal of God's activity? In Ezekiel 36, in Ezekiel 36, I'm going to just walk us forward here just a little bit. In Ezekiel, go to your table of contents, find the book of Ezekiel. 
36. This is a, a, a great, it's also, if you want to write this down, it's also in, it's also in Jeremiah 31 uh, in other places. In Ezekiel 36, this uh, famous passage, you can pick the context up later where God says, I'm going I'm I'm to save you, Israel. I'm going I'm to bring you back and I'm going to save you. And in 36, 26, he says this, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I give you and your forefathers and I will be your God. It's interesting to me that in the Old Testament, in in Jeremiah 31, in Ezekiel 36, this promise of what future will occur with this new covenant and this new agreement. I hear Christians sometimes talk and they say, well, you know, the struggle we have is because the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? And I got a wicked heart. I'm saying, wait a minute. The New Testament teaches that when you come to Jesus, you get a new heart. You don't have an old heart. You get a new, that's what it says. I will give you a new heart and I will give you a new spirit. This has to do more with an understanding that this isn't just kind of making things a little better or turning over a new leaf. This is a fundamental change in the way that God is working and operating with people. And so the promise of God throughout the Old Testament, if you will, is for the presence of the Spirit to make a difference in the lives of people. So what Jesus, or what the writer here says to us, Ezekiel says, a new heart, a new spirit, and I'm going to write the law of God on your heart. So that's part of the promise. Now, we're we're going to keep moving here. There's a lot of stuff to cover. We're going to look here. Look also now, go to Matthew. Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. You can just go to the right there a little bit. And here's a phrase that I'm going to give you several passages you can look at. But here's here's a phrase that keeps occurring about Jesus. And uh, if you read the first uh, part of the Gospels, you can find this. Let me give them to you the verses here. Matthew 3, 7 to 12. You can turn there. But then I'll give you Matthew 3, 7 to 12. Mark 1, 4 to 8. Mark 1, 4 to 8. Luke 3, 15 to 17. Luke 3, 15 to 17. John 1, 29 to 34. What I want you to understand is this promise. This promise is not only in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. It's also clearly repeated and made a statement by John the baptizer in these passages. Look look what John the baptizer, he wasn't a Baptist yet, he was a baptizer. And uh, that's, that's a little problem. Uh, in, in Matthew 3 here where it says these words, where this is John referring to Jesus' ministry. Verse 7, he warns the Pharisees. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you. Well, this guy wasn't a very seeker-friendly church guy, was he? <laughs> People are coming out to where he's speaking. He said, you brood of vipers. In other words, you bunch of snakes. I, I teach my students to do that. No, I don't. <laughs> he said, bear fruit that comes with repentance. Notice what he says. Therefore, bear fruit came with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We're Abraham is our father. For I say to you that these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down into the fire. Now, you know, I want to show you something here. You might want to just underline the word fire there because context determines meaning. He says the 
the axe is at the root of the tree and, and uh, you know, uh, he's going to cut it down and throw it in the fire. Now, verse 11, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he was coming after me is mightier than I am, and I'm not able to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, think about this. Watch, watch how it goes. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat in the barn, but with, he will burn up the chaff or chaff with unquenchable fire. There it is again. Let me suggest to you that the word here, when he says he will, in verse 11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the Greek word here, kai, can often and is often translated based on context, or, or, O-R. That John is saying here that the ministry of Jesus brings with it both promise and judgment. Notice those judgment ideas. What happened to the tree? Cut down. And then what? Thrown into the fire. What happens to the shaft that he puts up in the air? And he, he burns it with what? Unquenchable fire. So here's the options with Jesus. You can be baptized with the Holy Spirit or fire. And fire in this context is not what? Good. It's not purifying. It's consuming. It isn't something that gets away the dross or the impurities. It consumes. This is repeated in every gospel. That Jesus is the one who comes to bring baptism by the Holy Spirit or fire. I don't think how you, I don't, again, context regulate some of these terms like kai. That the use of fire here cannot, in my judgment, be purifying. It can't be, it can't be a positive here. It has to be something that has to do with this notion that Jesus comes to bring the baptism with the Spirit or there's fire. So in all of the Gospels, when John speaks of Jesus, he re rephrases this. Thing. It's part of a promise. It's part of a promise. This one who is coming that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Promise after promise. Got it? There it is. Now, you can wrestle with this a bit because there, you know, I, I tell my students, Jesus is a pretty complicated guy. He confuses me at times. You know, he does. He confuses me at times. He's loving. That's his, that's his nature. But because of his coming now, there's a decision to make. Do you want to be baptized with the Spirit or fire? Which one is it? There really isn't a middle ground here. You're, you can participate, you know. It's a promise that he'll baptize us or immerse us. The word baptizo is the same word that means to sink a ship, to go under, 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 it's under the influence. In other words, the idea, do we come under the influence of the Spirit? Or is it we're going to come under the influence of fire? So this promise of God in Ezekiel, all the gospel. Now watch it. Keep going to the right here. Go to Acts. Go to, go to the Acts. Go, or go to your table of contents. Acts 1. Acts 1. I'm trying to get kind of a synoptic or big picture here about the importance, the reality here, if you will, that the scriptures teach about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. 
in Acts chapter 1, here is Jesus who has risen from the dead and has been around about 40 days. Um, you imagine that? I, I don't know if y'all saw the, I forget the name of the, the uh, uh, series that was on a, a year or so ago, whatever. You know, I can't remember yesterday. But uh, uh, this series about uh, the, uh, Jesus uh, coming back and then the book of Acts and Peter and Paul and all those guys. Can you imagine after you'd seen Jesus die that you see him raised from the dead and for 40 days he hangs out, talks, meets with you, discusses things. You know, for me, I remember in watching that movie or watching that television thing that whenever they were talking about how they'd failed and how they felt so bad about things and then Jesus appears, I about lost it. I thought, what would it be like to be in a room like that, that this Jesus that you've loved and followed and he appears and he says, it's okay. It's okay. I, I would think that when Jesus was risen from the dead like that, and they would see him, that the next words out of his mouth would be these. I'm alive. Sick him. <laughs> right? I'm alive. He that was once dead is now alive. This Jesus raised from the dead. That would be what I think. And that's again why you're glad I'm not God. <laughs> Look what Jesus said though. Verse 3 of Acts 1. These he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days, speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God or the rule of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them. Together he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Again, see, what I'm saying is, okay, guys, let's mount up. Let's go. You know, it's like John Wayne. Let's go. Do not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the, the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They were asking him, Lord, is this the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Isn't that a great question? <laughs> Like, we want to know about the politics. We want to know what you're going to do to set up your kingdom. He's saying, look, you need power, and the Holy Spirit will come. He said, then it's not for you to know the time, but you'll receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Martoreo is the Greek word. You shall be my martyrs. That's what the word means. A witness is a person who gives evidence based on their life, not just their words. Martoreo is the word here. Not just witnessing with your mouth, but with your life. Witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and other part of the earth. So, so the notion here of the promise, this, this suggests, I would say, that if the, if the promises of the Old Testament are that the Holy Spirit will be the, the, the reality, the, the feature, the truth of the new age, and if Jesus and others declare and, Mark, and John declares and then Jesus, at the last of his ministry, says, wait. Why? Because it's not over. It's not over. The work of God on the earth, not over. You're not ready yet. Can you imagine this? To say at the cross how wonderfully thankful we are for what Jesus did, but for Jesus to look people say in the eye, you're not ready. 
What do you mean? You paid for my sins for crying out loud. You, 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 you cover. Yeah, I know. You, you, you don't just need pardon. We're going to come back to this, but write this down. You don't just need pardon. You don't just need pardon, Cliff. You need power. You, you just don't need pardon. You need power. And this is the teaching that I think that sometimes we've forgotten. I've forgotten. I, I don't always live in the reality of this or understanding of this. That, that there is not only the need for pardon, but there's the need for, for power. So if I were to draw this, if you will, you know, here's the, here's the birth of Jesus. Here's the ministry of Jesus. Here's the death and resurrection of Jesus. And here's the Spirit's bestow, bestowing as the goal. All of this necessary, of course. What's it working toward? This. You know, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, you, you may know this, but let me just remind you. This promise, this matter about the Spirit. Fifty days after Jesus is uh, on the earth here, ten days after he leaves, you know, he, he is here for 40 days and leaves for ten. That the power of the Spirit is poured out on the church or followers of Jesus. And we, you know, we have a Pentecost party every year. Beth helps us with that. I've said to you before, I am, I, I'm all about Christmas. I love Christmas. I love Easter. I enjoy Easter. My, what a wonderful time. What I'm always confused about is why we don't celebrate Pentecost. That's what I'm confused about. Because if I'm seeing this correctly, this is the goal of all of God's activity. Why is that? There's a couple reasons. I'm going to get off my notes here. but This thing's been boiling up in me for a little while. That's scary. <clears throat> The day of Pentecost was, was celebrated as a day to celebrate the incoming of the harvest. About, you know, about May, late May, sometime like that. They, they would bring the harvest in and they would always give a gift at the temple and, and, and praise God for the, the harvest that they'd had. And so there's in the mind of every Jewish person the understanding of in-gathering. It's already there. When the Spirit comes, the, the book of Acts tells us that God ingathered all kinds of people. Mede, Parinthians, you know, uh, Jews, Greeks. It even goes so far to say Egyptians and Jebusites and the mosquito bites that live right down from them. <laughs> they don't really live there. But Jebusites and Hittites. This ingathering now of everybody, male and female. And promise to Joel that your young daughters and your young men will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh, the slave, the free, the male, the female. They understood that. There's something else happening though that Pentecost was also the celebration of the giving of the law. It was always a celebration of the giving of the Ten Commandments and Israel understood that what made them the people of God was the law. What, what set them apart 
from all other nations was that they, th they believed that they had in the law the embodiment of God's will for humanity. And so when they celebrated on Pentecost, they celebrated the giving of the law. They said, this is what makes us the people of God. It's always been fascinating to me that what is it that makes the people of God now in the New Testament? Do we all agree to doctrinally? Do you all understand everything correctly? What? The Spirit. The giving of the Spirit is what makes and creates and constitutes the people of God. That, that imagery there in Acts, that imagery there on Pentecost, this, this incredible, if you will, understanding, this promise to say, I'm, I'm going to, if you will, uh, 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 make you the people of God. One of my professors said it like this in this regard. That what happens on Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit, listen to this now, is that God re-enters the real temple, the heart's and lives of people. The real temple. The real temple is you and me. You can read this later in the book of Revelation that the, that the dwelling place of God is now among men. The temple. The real temple. That God for millennia has been trying, it, well not trying, but working, he's, working his way back to being in the lives of people in somewhat like Adam and Eve. He's re-entering the temple. You can go look at this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 19. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 19. Paul's, uh, Paul's entire understanding is that he said, don't you know, when he's talking to people about living, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians, he said, we're all being built into a temple, a, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. I've often been fascinated by Paul about this idea. You know, if you read 1 Corinthians 6, you realize that's a messed up church. Yeah? You know, there, there are divisions, there's, they're arguing, they're in sexual immorality, they're going to sue each other. People say to me, oh, if we could just return to the early church. I'm going, not the one at Corinth. <laughs> it's not the church I want to go to. Mm-mm, not me, brother. Paul saying, look at all this stuff they're doing. It's fat. Go back and read. It's fascinating how he corrects them. He didn't say, now listen, you know, if you keep doing this, you're going to go to hell. Right? Didn't that sound like what you heard? That's what I heard when I was a kid. Hell. It's like a long word. Hell. Just had to drag it out. Scarier that way. <laughs> He doesn't do that. He, listen, they're involved in some weird stuff. He says this. Don't you know who you are? Don't, don't you know that you're the temple? of the? Why would you let something like that, not, not to shame you, not to beat you up, to say, wait a minute, don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? I mean, this isn't like you're going to get in trouble. This is like, this is inconsistent with who you are. He didn't beat them up. He doesn't get mad at them. He, he, he's willing to say, this promise, this promise is that God would come and dwell among his people and in them. Other than that, guys, I'll just tell you, I don't know how we're much different than every other religion. 
They've all got a book. We do too. They've all got liturgy. We do too. They've all got rules. We got lots of them. <laughs> they, all of the, I don't know. What, what distinguishes us as followers of Jesus? This is why I was, I thought it was a, getting off script now. Where's Becky? Help me. I always thought personally, you don't have to agree with thoughts and opinions as a teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, elders or leadership. I always thought it was pretty dumb to wear a bracelet that said, what would Jesus do? It doesn't help me to know what he would do. Did it help you? Could you now suddenly, I can do that. Suddenly, I know what Jesus would do. Now I can just pull that off. That was the most depressing thing I've ever seen. It isn't knowing what Jesus would do. It's having the power of the Spirit to be able to do what Jesus does. I tell my students all the time, hey, the Christian life isn't difficult, okay? It's impossible. <laughs> it's not difficult. It's impossible. If, you're, if we're not living, if we understand the promise of, the, of God, the Spirit, then we're just living out here. James McDonald said, God can't do through you what he hadn't done to you. His presence. Now, here's another thing. The promise, the power. Man, I'm not going to get to that other point. <laughs> the power. Uh, you know, Jesus made several statements. And I'm just going to give you... I, if you look at the Bible synoptically, big, big time, I think that power for Christian living is in three areas. And I'll give, I'll give, I'll give you some verses here in a second. But this first, the, the presence and life of the Holy Spirit is a promise and it's power. Number one, there, there is power for witness. We just read that in Acts 1 where Jesus said, and you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my martyrs, my witnesses unto all, into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other postmart of the earth. He says you're going to receive power. To what? To witness. Now, again, I think we far too long uh, uh, tried to, to, to make witnessing relegated to just talking to people and giving them information. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, my dad, I told you before, my dad had the gift of, he could lead a fire hydrant to the Lord, you know. I, I, I've watched him. It's just crazy. But witnesses to say our lives, our lives speak. I've told you before, Becky, when we were in seminary, used to ride a bus uh, to work because her husband, who is a great mechanic, I set our car on fire. I did. I didn't mean to, <laughs> but I was working on it. Had a little gas going. I thought, well, I got to get to UPS. I got to get to work tomorrow. So I thought I'll just arc that starter across there. Again, not remembering there's a little gas over here. You, you, you should have seen the fireman when he talked to me. <laughs> I had to call the fireman. You did what? I'm thinking, can you go to jail for this? <laughs> I mean, I didn't set anybody else on fire. I set my own stuff on fire. It wasn't like a pyro or anything. But Becky, you know her. She's quiet. She's reserved. She's probably hiding right now somewhere. She would ride the bus to the University of Kentucky where she worked because I had to have a car to go to United Parcel Service in the morning at 3. She's riding the bus. 
You know, Becky, she's pretty mouthy. You know, she's pretty loud. <laughs> hey, how's everybody? You know, if you were to die tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? You know, she gets on the bus and she's riding day in and day out, gets there and reads a book or something like that. A lady that had been on the bus for several weeks stopped her one time and said, I'll ask you a question. She said, uh, what? She goes, you're a Christian, aren't you? And Becky said, yes. And she goes, I can tell. And you know what? I got a lot of degrees and a lot less temperature. <laughs> Not too many people ever said that to me. They said, that, you're a preacher, aren't you? <laughs> it always hurts my feelings a little bit. <laughs> Right? Martureo. Here's Becky riding a bus. Just being Becky. Just letting the Spirit of God work in her life to be kind, to be attentive. And a lady out of the blue just says, I know you're a Christian, aren't you? See, it, I think we placed, we need to place some emphasis on the words at times. But we probably need to realize, Martu Reo, there's power for me to live in such a way that people start asking questions. That's power in it. That's not just, you know, getting everything you want. That's, that's the kind of power that, that people's lives get changed by. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not denigrating. If you like to talk out loud, and I do, and others, it's okay. But I think we need to understand that this term here is talking about the way we live in our neighborhoods, with our kids, at our job. That people look at us and they say, did they see some? A buddy of mine in Orlando says that this, he, he's been working with his church not to see how many people can get to church. He's saying, I want to see how many of us can get salty. Now, some of you already are, and you know what I mean. <laughs> salty. So when people get around us, Jesus said, you're the salty. So when, when, when people are around, they, they, they're wondering, what's, what's going on here? What's happening? So witness. That's, that's one of the ways that Jesus brings power to our lives. And I would to God that this week that every one of us would say, now, Jesus, would you give me the power that I need to live at the job I work at or to deal with the pressures I face? Or would you give me the power to drive like a Christian? <laughs> would, you give me the, would you give me the power to, to be generous with other people? And kind. So, so power. Second one is, is witness, is power. The second one is service. The power of the Holy Spirit is to give us the power for service. 1 Corinthians 12, you can read the whole chapter, it wouldn't hurt you. <laughs> you know, just saying. <laughs> this idea that when he says that, there are many different gifts that are given, but the same Spirit, and many different varieties of functions, but the same Lord. That word, charismata, okay, don't get scared, okay? <laughs> There's a variety of gifts, charismata. We get the word charismatic. That word simply means a grace gift from the Spirit. A grace gift, something God gave you. Something, something God gave to you to use. Not in your own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit. You know, I, when I teach, I, 
I think it's funny that God gave me, you know, some of you maybe the gift of teaching. I, you know, I, I tell people all the time, maybe this will encourage you. Listen, I didn't like school when I was going to high school. I do. I got to, I graduated 208 out of 288. <laughs> Mr. Scholar up here. I told you I'm not that smart. I'm real loud. <laughs> when I went to college, I got interested. If my teachers would say, I'm a teacher, they'd laugh their heads off. It wasn't me too. I thought, no, that can't be true. I thought I'm an evangelist because I can talk. <laughs> every time I teach, I remind God of this. Or not every time, but most times. Preachers can lie if you're not careful. Here we go. <laughs> I'll say this often. Hey, this wasn't my idea. I'm serious. I'm serious. It's a hard time. I'm serious. This wasn't my idea. I didn't ask for this. The pressure sometimes I feel, the strain that I feel in teaching, the time to prep, the time to get together. I've just said to God before, hey, I didn't ask for this. You decided this was the way, so you better do something. I mean, I'm in the men's restroom down here at the hall, at the end of the hallway. I'm saying, now look, I probably, I might be the least qualified person to talk about this, but you put this on my heart and you put me this way, so it's up to you. That's, that's liberty, man. Are, are you serving in the area of the grace gifts that God gave you? I'll tell you this. I, I know this for a fact from my own life and others. You will never know the joy of life until you find out how God's gifted you and get involved with it. You're never going to experience life at a high level. Do you know how God through the Holy Spirit has gifted you? Let me help you real quick. Number one, number one, here's how we can do this real quick. One way is take a spiritual gift test. They're online. It's called the Houts, H-O-U-T-S Modified. Houts Modified, H-O-U-T-S, Houts Modified. Help you understand how God may have wired you up. You go to a Christian bookstore, they're a spiritual gift. Now listen, this, this, can get, this can get a little weird because I'll tell you this, I tell my students this all the time. Once you find out what your spiritual gifts are, you know what to say yes to and you know what to say no to, right? There are people who come to me and ask me to do something. I say, I, I, I just, I really can't. That's just not my area. Now, it doesn't mean I don't have a responsibility to be kind and merciful for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I can do that. I tell my students, when you can fake caring, you got it made in the ministry, man. <laughs> you know, just have to say, okay. But you can't get long-term involved in an area you're not gifted in. Or it'll, it'll drain the life out of you. So you're going to know what to say yes to. And you're going to know what to say no to. And that may be in the ministry of the church. It may be in your neighborhood. I don't know. But so take up a spiritual gift. Number two. Number two. Listen to other people what they say they see you effective at. Listen to other people what they say you're effective at. I've been in the ministry a long time. <laughs> I know a couple of guys that said, God called me to preach. And I say, okay, you got the wrong message or something not right here. Because you can't. <laughs> Let's just be honest here. You can't. It's like you're Dr. Somonex to all of us. <laughs> and I'm not talking, and I'm not just talking about entertaining. You know, people can be entertaining and be goofy. But there's nothing happening here. So you know what to say yes to. What 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 is it? People seem effective. Seem effective. Number three, fill in the blank. If I could do anything for God, I would blank. If I could do anything for God, I would. 
Now, that can be selfish if you're not careful, you know. I think there's one more that Rick Warren talks about. And that's this. What is something that God has brought you through that was painful and difficult that has now given you a heart for others? What has God brought you through that's been painful and difficult? Painful and difficult. You've gotten through it. And God can use that to help others. So power is for witness. Power is for service. Third, the power of the Holy Spirit is power for character. Power for character. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit. Not straining. I'm going to have this or it's going to kill me. The result, the fruit, the consequence of the Spirit. It's not try harder. It's not discipline yourself to death. It's opening our lives to the power of the Spirit. And one of the things that the Spirit's power does is to create the character of Jesus. I was talking to Becky this other day, and I may be way off on this. But over the years, it it, it just seems to me that in some ways we've forgotten that what God is up to is Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he did also predestine to become conformed to the image of his Son. And that's what God's up to. In fact, it says in Romans 8, 24, we know that God works all things together for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those who be predestined, he be called conformed. See, the good that God is up to in 28 is not your IRA, because boy, if he is, he's doing a terrible job. <laughs> it's not that all your kids are born with straight teeth. It's not that, you've, that you, you, know, you become some highfalutin whatever. It's that you and I become like Jesus. Here's what I've been concerned about. I read this just the other day from a guy that wrote in 1960. I said, okay, I'm going to say this. There's a lot of Christian teaching that seems to me that the power of the Spirit is for you to achieve your goals and your plans and your vision. That's okay if it's lined up with God's. But it seems to me that we've turned Jesus into our servant. He's here for me to meet my goals. He's here for me to get my purpose and identity. And, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not wrong or I'm not, I'm not against people progressing and doing well. But there's a subtle thing here that it's not character. It's not character that God is after. It's some kind of achievement. I just want you to be alert to that. Jesus is not our servant. He loves us and he is there for us. But he's got a program and that program is character. Okay? Now, how do we do this? Okay, here we got to go. We got to hurry. Is this thing? Here we go. The cooperation needed. The cooperation needed. So, so here we go. We've got, we've got the goal of God's activity. Now the cooperation needed. Uh, go to your table of contents. Find the book of Ephesians. Well, no, go to Acts first. Let's go to Acts first. 
Are you in Acts? Okay, stay there. <laughs> Good. <laughs> stay there. <laughs> How do we experience this life? How? It sounds great, Cliff. Oh, that's wonderful. Lots of platitudes like this about the power of the Spirit. But how do we cooperate here? How, how do we, let, me, let me say, first of all, that life in the Spirit is not an attainment, but an alignment. Get that now. Life in the Spirit is not an attainment, but an alignment. It's this internal presence that lives within us. That as we're walking and going through life, we may do something stupid or we may do something rebellious and the Spirit of God taps us on the shoulder and says, let's get back in line. That's walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Walking in the Spirit means you're attentive to the internal presence that will correct you. I was talking to somebody last week. Listen, and some of us are so beat up with shame and so beat up with guilt. Go to Hebrews 13 later. Don't get out of Acts. <laughs> Go to Hebrews 13 or 12, sorry, go to Hebrews 12 later. See, read them both, they'll do you good. But go to 12. Go to 12, where the writer of Hebrews says this that every child that God receives, he corrects. And if you don't receive correction, you're not his. That's, that's strong. I mean, he, King James even puts a bigger word in there, but I'll leave that alone. He says that if you don't receive correction when you're walking in life, you're not his. Some strong language there. See, it's not attainment. It's alignment. I'm walking through life and I think something stupid or I do something. And the Spirit of God says, okay, let's, let's go. Listen, my professor told me this and I think it's true. The greatest evidence that you're a child of God, not that you feel close to God, not that you always have all these good things. I never have those, hardly ever. I never heart, forget it. <clears throat> Here's the evidence. God corrects you when you need to be realigned. He says that there. In fact, he says, and, he do, and, and any one that he does not receive is because it's not his child. You, know, you saw, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you see kids run down the hall and it didn't matter if they were their parents. Hey, little kid, you stop that. Now, now you go to jail. <clears throat> You don't correct somebody else's kids, do you? You better not. God doesn't correct the devil's kids. He corrects his. Now, some of us are so powerfully beat up with shame that when we get that correction, we think that's evidence that we're rotten and no good. Listen, that's evidence you're a child of God. You need to do this. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Give me the opportunity. I want to get re-lined up here. It's not attainment. It's alignment. It's being willing to respond to that internal presence that guides and directs us through life. Notice here in Acts, I want to show you something here. Look what it says right here. This is helpful, I think. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, And they were all together, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled. They were fi and they began to speak with other tongues. We'll talk about that later. Because <laughs> it only occurs three times in the book of Acts. It's very interesting. Speaking in tongues. The, the Holy Spirit says they filled it with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is Peter and James and John, all these guys. Now, go over to chapter 4 real quick. They've been, they've been uh, thrown in jail. They've been beat up and told, you know, hey, shut up. Quit talking about this Jesus thing. And they, uh, they get pretty roughly treated. And look over here, 
uh, and they come back to the people that they're reporting to and said, hey, you know what? We were pretty badly treated. And it says here, verse 31, and they went, uh, chapter 4, verse 31. And when they prayed, the place was together was shaken, and they were what? Filled. Well, hey, same group, same people. Is filling for the Holy Spirit just once? Do you, do you get a good enough load one time? You know? Like I told Becky on, on August the 17th, I love you. When it changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> August 17th, 1979, I love you. Changes, I'll let you know. Come on. <laughs> this idea that there is some way to have some experience with God that fixes us for good. Here's my assessment. That's what we call an addiction. You're looking for something to fix you. To take the pain away for good. That's an addiction. This is a life, not of attainment, but alignment. These same guys, in the matter of a few days, are filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, And it says, by the way, for you scholars, they were all filled, not just the newbies, all of them. Now, this relates, go to Ephesians real quick, or I'll just read it. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 18, where Paul makes this remarkable statement. It says, and you know, there are verbs and all kinds of things. If the Bible was translated literally, they're not trying to fake you out. We have great Bible translations, but verbs are sometimes hard to translate. And if translators translated every verb, the Bible would be in nine volumes. It's just huge because this verb here, when it says, and be filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a present durative that means keep on being filled. It's not a one-time deal. Keep on being filled. Keep on being filled. And it's very important here that the voice in this verb is what we call passive. And the passive voice means you're being acted on. The active voice is I threw this thing here. That's, that's the active voice. The passive voice is I am being thrown across the room. I'm being acted on. And so it's the idea of be being filled with the Spirit continuously, all the time, over and over again. And you can't do this. You have to be being filled. Now, how does that happen? Here's my assessment. I'll just, and I'm going to stop here. We got to, we'll finish this next week. The reason we're not filled is because we're already full. Of ourself. I can handle this. You ever noticed? I made this statement a long time ago and it's still ringing my head. It's your inadequacy that creates your capacity for God to work in your life. It's your inadequacy that creates your capacity for God. To, listen, I'm up to date on my mortgage. I have a little money in the bank. My health is pretty good so far. 
People ask me, how are you doing? I say, I have no idea. <laughs> I live in a nice neighborhood. Things are pretty nice. When I get up in the morning, I don't wake up wondering, am I going to eat today? I don't consider, am I going to be safe today? I don't wake up wondering, but listen, you lost your job last week? You think you may lose your job? What happens to your prayer life and your sense of dependence upon God? What happens if they, we drove in the church, I don't know what happened, we drove in the church today, a fire engine was going out. In my crazy thought, that that's going to be you someday, Cliff. <laughs> First thought come to my mind. I told you it's crazy up here. What if, what if you were going to St. Anthony Hospital tomorrow because they had to do exploratory surgery. They think they've seen something and they've had you sign some stuff that say you, you may never walk again. How big is your capacity for God? How big is it? Come on. I want a cup of coffee and I'm talking. What? Huh? It's huge. Why? You don't have the resources to handle it. And you know it. Our problem is we think we can handle just about everything. And you know what? We can. If you and I want to live a life and think that life is just about paying a mortgage, having a job, working with our kids, staying above the water and financially, and eating good, fine. It's more than that. It's our inadequacy that God is seeking to help us to understand. It's your inadequacy that creates your... You know, we used to use a word in church a long time ago. We don't use it it's called surrender. <laughs> it's the key. I mean, I, I remember, I told you before, when I was in seminary and I found, I said, I, you know what? I don't think there's anybody in here but me and I don't think I can do this. And it's like God said, whew, it's about time. Right? For most of us, something has to happen crazy to crack us, to break us, to bust us up before we surrender and say, you know what? You're right. When Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It doesn't mean you can't go to work. It doesn't mean you can't have a job. It means spiritually and in terms of power, you can't do anything, Cliff. I was lots older than I want to admit before I ever believed that. So I just want to ask you to do. We'll be finished. I, I have an application somewhere. Here we go. Any working out is the result of God's working in us. You get that turned around, it'll be miserable. Any working out in my life that isn't God working in is absurd. And I'll give you a verse on that later. We'll do this. But what if this week you claim the promise of God's presence for your life before you leave the driveway and act on that belief and believe it? Or, we over here? Or you're committed to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's working life so you can work out in daily living His work. Here's how I want to ask you to think about doing that. Here's what I've done sometimes. I've got to let you go. I'm sorry. I'm, I know I'm running late. I'll take my schedule and look at it and say, Jesus, I'm going to depend on you today. Here's what I know is going to happen. But you know, it's rarely the things that I know that bug me. It's the things that I don't know about. And then I'll say, now, Jesus, there are things today going to happen that I don't know about. I'm going to trust you right now. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to cooperate. Because we all know there are things that happen, never understood it was going to happen, didn't know it was going to happen, and bam, we're down for the count. 
So I'm going to cooperate. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to cooperate. My fullness will be cons consistent with how much emptiness there is in Cliff. Your, your fullness and my fullness of the Spirit is correlated to how much emptiness there is in our understanding of living this thing. So don't buy a bracelet. Don't ask yourself, what would Jesus do? It ain't going to help you. Don't decide you're going to discipline yourself and try hard. It isn't going to do work. Surrender. Open yourself to his adequacy. It's what makes us Christians. Lord Jesus, as fumbling and as inadequate as I am to communicate this, I know you're in this room and you're in the hearts of people that love you. You may be even talking to some people here that aren't even sure about this. We want to hear that other voice that gets us out of cultural Christianity and brings us into the fullness, not of attainment, but alignment. Aligning our lives to follow you, Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.